Well, hello again. I'm sorry, you're stuck with me. However, uh, pastors Desiree and Jason are both on uh, vacation this week, and I didn't burn the church down. So it's a win. Oh, I got to clap. That's great. Um, just kidding. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, we are in week seven of our seven-week series that we've called The Art of Hope. And we've been making our way through the book of Philippians. Uh, we've been looking at this letter that Paul has written to the church in Philippi. And uh, what we've been doing is trying to extract the threads of hope that are in this letter. This is coming from a guy who is writing from prison, which, if that were me, uh, would feel like the most helpless and hopeless place you could ever try to find hope. But we've been trying to extract some things uh, that are useful for us as followers of Jesus to be hope casters. What do we need to do in, in, our, in, in and around our lives to cast hope in a world that desperately needs it? And so we have been, uh, the last two weeks, been in chapters 3. And in chapter 3, Paul is kind of laying out what it means to be not just spiritually mature, and he uses those words, but to live a life of faithfulness. And some of the things that it takes to live a spiritually mature life. And today we're going to be in uh, chapter 4, and he kind of takes a different spin on that, and he talks about what it means to live with a Christ-like attitude. And so uh, if, if you've got your Bible, you can open to Philippians 4. We're going to be in the first uh, nine verses or so, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We can give you one if you need one. Uh, just find me after church, and I'd be glad to do that. However, if you do have your phone and want to open your Version app, uh, which is just a Bible app that's for free, uh, and you go to more events and then find Sea Road. Uh, you can actually follow along there today. So a lot of scripture, a lot of things we're going to be discussing today. Uh, hope that you can follow along in Philippians 4. So Philippians 3 was about spiritual maturity. Philippians 4 is about living with a Christ-like attitude. And sandwiched in between these two verses are, are this, this really strange odd, random two verses, and I think you'll pick it out when we read it in a sec. This is Philippians 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you, and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement, and I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose name are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. 
Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things. That, think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, as we come out of some verses that talk about what it means to be spiritually mature and and run into some verses that talk about what it means to have Christ-like attitudes, God, these two verses that are sandwiched in between that we're going to talk about now Open our hearts and our minds. Let us be honest with ourselves. And may you teach us something, even if it hurts a little bit. God, show us the stretch marks of our faith. God, that you may change us and transform us through the power of your word and all of God's people said. Did you catch them? Did you catch, like, the two verses that are in there that seem completely out of place? Anyone know what I'm talking about? So we've got this chapter about, like I said, spiritual maturity, and then we've got these beautiful verses about attitude. And in verses 2 and 3, Paul makes this, like, complete—he just goes off and talks about this squabble that these two women are having. And it seems really out of place. In verses 2 and 3, he's just, uh, he's explaining this thing that's happening in the church. And then he just kind of goes off of it and keeps going on with his letter. And what's really interesting here is that although it seems out of place, and he's writing a letter to the whole church, and then he stops and is like, oh, Euodia and Syntyche, why don't you guys fix the thing? It's like he, it's like you're writing an email to somebody and being like, oh yeah, here's a message for your kids, blah, 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 and then you just keep going on with the email. Like, he just stops what he's talking about, he makes it personal, and then he goes back to just talking to the entire church. And so I don't know if in reading that, you're like, that seems like really odd. Why, why is it even there? Well, I don't believe that there's anything in God's word that is just kind of there. It's all there to kind of teach us some stuff. So let me read it again. Verse 1, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you, and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. It's like, oh, that's nice. It's like, all right, you Odia and Syntyche. So he's changing the subject. And he says, now I appeal to. He's like, okay, forget what I'm talking about. Now I'm talking about this. He says, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And he says this, I ask you, my true partner... So we don't know who this is. We don't know who the true partner is. We just know that it's probably someone with a gift of wisdom or or mediation. He says, help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. So we've got this, like, brief random argument that's happening within the church. And so here are some of the things that we know about what's going on. We know that it's not an issue of doctrine or theology. The argument that these women are having is not about doctrine or theology. Because all throughout the book of Philippians, 
uh, if, if you've been reading along with us, is that we know that Paul loves arguments about doctrine and theology, right? That, that almost the whole book of Philippians and Galatians is about circumcision. It's about the decision uh, of whether or not Christians should be circumcised or not. And so we know that Paul loves to talk about doctrine and theology, and more importantly, he loves to correct people when they're wrong about doctrine or theology. But he doesn't go off on the women here. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about what's going on because probably it's not a, a, a conversation about doctrine or theology because we know that he loves to get in the middle of that stuff with the churches that he planted. And this is one of those churches that he planted. You can go back and read it in Acts 16 when he, his first visit to Philippi. So I don't know what it's about. I mean, it could be about who, whose turn it was to empty the dishwasher, or it could be about, I don't know, who didn't put the toilet seat down last, or who didn't replace the toilet paper roll. I don't know what the conversation was about. I don't know what the argument was about, but it's irrelevant. And so here's the other thing that we know about this, is that Paul doesn't point out who's wrong, and Paul doesn't take sides. He could have, and maybe he even did have an opinion on it. We all have opinions on things, and let's be honest, some of us like to share those opinions a little louder than others. But he doesn't take sides, and he doesn't point out his opinion. Instead, he takes the approach that Jesus told us to take in Matthew 18, where you find a mediator. Look, settle your dispute with someone in the church, a trusted elder. And the third thing we know about this squabble is that these women were actually important leaders in the church of Philippi. So if you uh, go back to Acts 16, you can actually see, uh, the, I think it starts at verse 12, um, Paul's first visit to Philippi. And he, there's, he doesn't mention them by name, but he talks about these women who were kind of like the early church planters of the church in Philippi. And so we don't know exactly who Euodia and Syntyche are, but we know that they're important church leaders in the church of Philippi. They more than likely maybe teachers or missionaries, um, which is why Paul is bringing it up. And so here's why it matters, is we don't know their position in the church, but we do know that they're important leaders. We do know that whatever is happening is affecting the church in Philippi. This argument, this, this disagreement, whatever it is, it is affecting the church. And, and so here's what I want us to go away with today, is that present disunity affects future activity. Let me say it again. Present disunity affects future activity. In other words, the things that are happening, the conversations that are happening within the church, okay, we're just talking within the church today, the, the context of followers of Jesus and, and the conversations that we're having with one another, when there is present disunity, it affects the activity of the church in the future. And so, Paul often spoke about doctrinal issues and interpersonal and relational ones. And he's saying that order, in order to stay true to the Lord, which is in verse 1, 
we must steer clear of divisiveness in the church. I just got quiet. Our interpersonal harmony is more important than our intellectual disagreements. You hear it, church? He's bringing this up, this seemingly random and brief conversation about this argument that the women are having, and he's saying, whatever is happening here, settle it, because the future of the church depends on it. So I'm not sure if um, us, like pastors, or we're like church nerds, and so we like to kind of know what's going on in the global church all around us. And so I don't know if you pay attention to any of this stuff, but in a lot of ways, the global church is in crisis. We're like the ugly stepchild right now. Because we've got church leaders who are falling left and right. We've got unreported sexual and clergy abuse happening in churches all over the place. Major networks are creating docu-series on mega churches and all these multiple leadership failings that they've had. Like, this stuff is going on all around us, and it's heartbreaking. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I believe in a victorious church. I believe in a victorious church, both now and in the future. I believe in the kingdom of God, the now and the not yet. I believe that Jesus is building his church on us, his people, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I believe all of those things. But I also believe that we, as the church, often like to shoot our own dead. And what I mean is when we see a brother or sister who's down, sometimes we like to try to make it worse. And sometimes we even bring divisiveness into the house. And I know we don't like to talk about this thing, but that is the most disturbing thing that can, I think, that can happen in any church, is that when followers of Christ are intentionally bringing divisiveness into the church. And sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes we just like people to know our opinions and our thoughts on every little thing. Sometimes the most disturbing things about churches are the people in them. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, we've got this argument. We've got this thing that's happening. And in order to avoid that, in order to, to avoid divisiveness, we need to take on these Christ-like attitudes that he goes on starting in verse 4. And so, I understand that Jesus promised us, the church, persecution and hard times I understand that it's not going to be perfect and that we make mistakes and that gr that's why grace is so important. I get all of that. But sometimes Christians are provoking divisiveness amongst one another. And when that happens, present disunity affects future activity. So let's talk about some of those things. Buckle up. I'm going to ruffle some feathers. The boss ain't here, so I can do it. I want to just call out some of these things, and I'm not going to point fingers, okay? I'm, I'm not going to expand on them. I think that some of this is going to resonate with you. I think that some of this is just good for us to call out. And before I call this stuff out, hear me when I say this, okay? I, 
I think that these conversations are important to have. They really are. Vaccinated or non-vaccinated? Masks or no masks? You can't tell me to wear a mask. Well, you have to wear a mask because it's... Roe versus Wade. Whether we should vote politically left because of this moral issue or should we vote politically right because of this moral issue? And where do we try to meet in the middle? Are we far? Are we, where do we fall? For those of you who hold a, a biblical or a traditional sexual ethic, it's Pride Month. How do we celebrate? Or do we? We have no idea how to serve our trans and queer communities as a church. No idea. And all of that, those are all tough, hard conversations. Those, and we're still talking about dress code in church, whether uh, Christians can consume alcohol, and whether women should be in leadership. And we're still having these conversations that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, again, don't mishear me. These are important conversations to have in certain contexts. But when we bring them into the church in a divisive manner and start to point the fingers and yell at one another, the world is looking going, these people are nuts. And so we're bringing divisiveness into the church. What good are we doing for the gospel if we're fighting with one another? And Paul is pointing to these two women, and he's saying, I don't know what the squabble is about, but settle it because the world depends on it. Your church depends on it. And so followers of Jesus, there are 20,000 people in this city who don't know Jesus, and we're still complaining about whether a pastor can wear a hat on stage. So what are we going to do? Are we going to continue to fight with one another about these, these issues when there are people who, if they were to die today, might not be able to say or have any idea where, what's going to happen or where they're going to go? And we're still going on about this issue or that issue or the left or the right or whatever. So Paul is trying to address this squabble between these women. Again, we don't know what the issue was, and it's irrelevant because he's saying when we do, when we bring divisiveness in with one another, the rest of the church can't move on. And so we need to begin to ask ourselves the question, what is it in our lives, if anything, am I bringing to the church that is affecting its future? Present disunity affects future activity. Okay, now that I've given myself a full inbox this week, there is hope. That's what this whole series has been about. It's been about trying to extract the little bits of hope in these teachings through the letter of Paul. And he begins to take us through these Christ-like attitudes that can avoid divisiveness in the church. So this is why he brings this conversation up for us. Paul uses this argument be between Euodia and Syndicate, uh, who are church leaders, as a lens for us to look into what it means to have a Christ-like attitude and avoid divisiveness in the church. So I think uh, in these following verses that there are four things 
that Paul extracts out of uh, his letter that we can add to our lives to avoid divisiveness. And the first is this, is to find joy. Find joy. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Now, I'm, some of you might not be Bible nerds, and that's totally okay. Um, in Hebrew and in some Greek texts, when someone wants to emphasize something, they don't use emojis. Uh, they don't use all, the all caps button when they want to emphasize a word or a phrase or a thing. What they did is that they repeated that phrase multiple times. And so here, Paul is doing that. He's emphasizing joy. He says, always be full of, the jo of joy. And again, I say, rejoice. And so not only that is he emphasizing it, but he is a man writing a letter from prison. How can a guy shivering in a, in a cold, damp prison cell be telling us to live with joy? And, and when we think of joy, we often think of happiness and, and peace, maybe someone who's laid back and down to earth and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's not necessarily that we have to show that, but we have to be that in every situation. This is what Jesus says about joy in John 15. It says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. He says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. He's repeating again this word, this phrase, this concept to emphasize it. I have told you things that you would be filled with joy. Yes, your love will overflow. And that's because God has created you specifically with purpose and significance and power. That is what it means to live with joy in every circumstance in our lives. Not, not just joy, but the kind of joy that overflows into the relationships around us. And when joy comes out of us, and not anger or malice, when joy comes out of us, and having these hard conversations, we avoid divisiveness when we exude the joy of our salvation, like Jesus says in John 15. So the first thing we do is to find joy. Second is this, is to show gentleness. This is Philippians 4, 5. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. So joy is not always visible to others. But if we want to show joy in every aspect and circumstance of our lives, how we do that is joy becomes visible by how we treat others. Here Paul uses the word, be considerate. That means to consider the opinions and the actions of others. Not to just interrupt all the time and say, nope, you're wrong. Consider it. It doesn't mean that they're right. It just means show gentleness. Now, I'm going to be honest. Gentleness is not the fruit of the Spirit that grows the most on my tree. Okay? Just ask my kids or anyone who tells me how to do my job right. Gentleness is 
is not my, my most colorful fruit. It's something I'm working on. But we consider others when we show gentleness, regardless of our thoughts and our opinions and the situations ahead of us. This is how Jesus talks about it in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am what? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, when we take the posture of Jesus, we show gentleness. Now, is that to say that Jesus was always gentle? Nope, he flipped tables. That was fun. But when it came to people, when it came to conversations, when it, when it came to the interpersonal part of his ministry, he showed gentleness and kindness and consideration for all those. He was gentle and meek. And so when we take this posture of what it means to be gentle and considerate, we help lessen the load of others. See what Paul's saying here? We avoid divisiveness within one another when we are gentle and considerate and we help lessen the load of others. And here's some ways that you can practice that. Show gentleness and empathy for those you disagree with. Have conversations where you practice listening instead of interrupting. Gain someone else's perspective without having to share your own. Agree to disagree. That's easy. Don't get the last word. It's Father's Day. I'm telling you some great stuff here, guys. Avoid divisiveness by finding joy and showing gentleness. The third thing is this. Replace anxiety with prayer. Replace anxiety with prayer. Verse 6 of Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything. Some translations say, do not be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and, it's a really important word here, and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. Now, I'm not going to be so naive, and I don't think Paul is either, to say that if you pray, anxiety goes away. That's not what he's saying. In fact, all of us probably experience anxiousness of some sort. And then there are some even here in this room who are diagnosed with anxiety. And so Paul is not just referencing either of those things, he's speaking to both of them, both the anxious and the anxiety. And so, he's not just saying, pray and that will go away. It's not what he's saying at all. But there's something theologically important that we can't miss in verse 6. He says, tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. And so what he's saying is that thankfulness and our requests should always go hand in hand. Why? Why should thankfulness go hand in hand with our requests? And what does that have to do with anxiety? Francis Chan says this, Thanksgiving should accompany 
all prayers because it both supplicates what God sends is good and includes remembrances of previous blessings. In other words, when we couple our prayers, our requests with thanksgiving, we are reminded of the way that God has answered in the past and the victory that he's claimed for the future. And so if you want to get rid of anxiety or anxious thoughts, at least even temporarily, it's about praying for those things and coupling it with thankfulness. Thankfulness. This is how uh, we see this in Jesus' life in Luke 22. Starting at verse 39, he says, Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, Pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then the angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I do know that there is a medical condition called, I need to read it because it's a big word, hematidrosis, where in a moment of anxiousness or panic, your sweat glands open up and mix with tiny broken blood vessels, and you can actually sweat blood, which is disgusting. But, and so there are some theologians who will say that Jesus was actually having a panic attack, that he was having anxious moments, and because of that, he was suffering, suffering from hematidrosis. And I don't know, and I'm not here to talk about whether I think that's accurate or not, but there is something to note here. Is Jesus was praying anxious thoughts. He knew what was ahead of him. This is right before he made the embarrassing and the terrifying and painful walk to the cross before he died for us. These were the thoughts that were going through his head. And he's saying, God, if there is any other way, let's do that thing. Because this is terrifying. And he's so anxious about it, he's so scared about it, that he's, he's literally sweating blood. But here's the thing. He couples his prayers of anxiousness with thanksgiving. He says, God, I am terrified. If there is any other way to take this cup of suffering away from me, please do that thing. Because, here comes the thankfulness, I know that your will is better than mine. Whatever you want and whatever you need to see happen, that's what I want. I am thankful that you are a God who is not only in control, but you are a God who is victorious over my life. Jesus couples his anxious prayers with thanksgiving. And so we, too, can lessen our anxious thoughts by praying prayers coupled with thankfulness, when we understand that God's will is better than ours. Any of us, when you know that you're about to have a hard conversation, you get super anxious? That's how we avoid divisiveness in the church, is couple our prayers with thankfulness. Fourth and final thing is this. Seek the good stuff. 
We live in a culture that loves to look at the negative. We love to look at the stuff that is going on in our world that is chaotic and crazy. So it says in Philippians 4, 8, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Seek out the positive things in life. And this is coming from someone who's probably errs on the cynical side sometimes. I saw that. I saw my wife smirk back there. Look for the good. This is Matthew 19. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'll say it again, again, repetition. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at him intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is what? Jesus is looking at the good stuff. He's looking at the things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable because God does impossible things. We serve a God who looks at our situation, and when we see it's impossible, he's like, oh, I can handle that. He sees the good, the promise, the victory, the answer in every possible situation. Seek the good stuff. Even when it seems hopeless and hard and difficult, seek the good stuff. Because we serve a God who is not only in control, but does the impossible when it seems, or does the possible where to us it seems impossible. So those are the four things. Those are the four attitudes that Paul wants us to add to our lives, Christ-like attitudes that, to avoid divisiveness in the church. Find joy show gentleness, replace anxiety with prayer, and seek the good stuff. And finally, in verse 9, he tells us to practice these things. Verse 9 of Philippians 4 says, Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Look, these are not things that are just going to happen overnight. Okay, so when I say, do these four things, I'm saying practice them. I'm not saying that they're miraculously going to happen overnight. They're things that we need to practice. He says, keep putting into practice all of these things that I'm telling you. So practice joy. It's in us to give. The joy of our salvation is supposed to overflow out of us. When things overflow, what happens? It goes all over the place outside of us. Right? If you fill water, uh, a cup of water and it overflows, it pours out around it. That's what the joy of your salvation should do. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from hell. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me life and purpose and pleasure and power and significance. That is joy. It should overflow out of us into those around us. Practice joy and practice gentleness. It's available to us, even for the grumpiest church curmudgeon. Practice gentleness. Make people more important than things. And then practice thankful prayers. Anxiety can be replaced with prayer when we include thankfulness in every request. And then finally, practice positivity. Fix your thoughts on the good things. Even when you're sad and mad and frustrated and confused, understand that God is control. And he does 
impossible things. Because our present disunity affects future activity. If you truly care about those who don't know Jesus, set aside and settle the things in your life that don't belong wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus. Because not only are there a whole bunch of people in this city and in our communities and in our lives and in our areas of influence who don't know Jesus, but there are people looking at the church right now going, what is this place? And then we, as followers of Christ, are within the church and can't handle our own stuff and are fighting with, with, with amongst each other. It just gives them more cannon fodder to go like, there is no way I want to be involved with something like that. Present disunity affects future activity. So I want to take, here's what I want to do. I want to take one minute of silence. And I want you to pray a psalm that says, God, search my heart. Reveal to me every wicked or divisive way in me. I want you to think about it. And I know a lot of you are probably thinking like, I'm fine. I'm here. I tithe. It doesn't matter if I'm a curmudgeon or not. What well, does? The future of the church depends on me and you and us to get it together, to love people well, and go from there. So I want one minute of silence. I want you to ask God to search your heart for any of those ways, and then I want to pray for us, and we're going to close our service. Let's ponder together.